0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible Linda K. Klein. Hi, Linda, and welcome to the show.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Today, we are going to talk about breaking free from silence and shame. And for those that don't know, Linda K. Klein is the founder and president of the nonprofit Break Free Together and a personal coach dedicated to helping people release shame and claim their whole selves. This work was born out of her 15 years of research on religious trauma around sex and gender, documented in her award-winning book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Linda's work has been featured by hundreds of outlets and venues, including CBS, NBC, NPR, the TEDx stage, and the Apollo's Women of the World Festival. She holds an interdisciplinary master's degree in gender studies, religious studies, oral history, nonfiction writing, and art as social change from New York University. How are you doing today, Linda?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for coming on to the show. I have so many questions. and I'm really excited to hear about more of the pure movement and more about breaking free together. So let's begin by talking about your incredible work in the world. Tell our listeners about this movement that you have created.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I would say that the movement that I have been a part of co-creating with a bunch of other folks was really born out of my personal experience, which, as it turns out, is the personal experience of many, many, many people around the country and around the world. I was raised in the Evangelical Christian Church um, in the Midwest. That is a community that represents about 25% of our country. And I actually joined evangelicalism at the very beginning of what I now know was the purity movement. So this was a movement that was designed by the white American evangelical Christian church, building upon a foundation that was already well-established in our country and globally of gender and sexual control to essentially shame young people about sexuality to such an extent that it would protect them. That was the idea, right? If we could create so much shame around their bodies, around their sexuality, around their gender, all of these types of things, then they will be non-sexual, not just abstinent, but non-sexual, no sexual thoughts or feelings or choices until they get married. And then one day they'll get married and everything will be perfect and their sexuality will explode, you know, will like a bolt of lightning and everything will be beautiful. And they won't, therefore, be dealing with STIs and the AIDS crisis that was, you know, very much a topic of conversation at the moment, of course, um, in the early 1990s at the beginning of this movement. And teen pregnancy and all of these other things that there was a lot of fear around as a culture. So I was raised in this movement, unbeknownst to me, (laughs) and
1: um, grew up. You, this was all just normal.
0: It was just, yeah, just my understanding of how the world works, right? Like we are supposed to be experiencing tremendous sexual shame and fear and anxiety. I'm supposed to feel horrible when I kiss my my high school boyfriend, right? And supposed to hate myself because I am not only endangering myself in that moment. But I'm endangering him and his eternal salvation because I, as a girl and a young woman, have been told that I hold the keys to all of our salvation because as a girl or a woman, I am the one who must maintain the purity of the entire community, not only by not doing anything sexual myself, but by not, quote unquote, inspiring any sexual thoughts or feelings or actions in others by, you know, flirting or wearing the wrong thing or what have you. And I just thought that that was normal (laughs) and that, you know, those doses of anxiety and fear were actually good for me. And then I remember, you know, starting to get older and the intensification of those feelings became more and more unbearable. You know, particularly as I started to become a more whole person and it became clear that I just was sexual. I just was, right? If not in what I was doing, in how people perceived me, right? You know, and I also was a kind of version of human that didn't fit in that tidy woman box that I was supposed to fit into in that community. And it became more and more uncomfortable and unbearable to hate myself because the hate grew stronger as my selfhood grew stronger and in opposition to what I was supposed to be. And I ended up leaving evangelicalism in my early 20s. And when I did, I thought that now I wouldn't experience the sexual shame and fear and anxiety that I had always experienced. That now I would suddenly be free to make my own choices and be who I was without judgment or shaming. But what I realized is that I had actually so internalized the judgment and the shaming that it lived inside of me. And that now, even if I separated myself from others who were shaming me, I was shaming myself. And that became such a life debilitating experience for me that I found myself unable to have healthy relationships, both with myself and with others, particularly romantic partners. And Unable to just (laughs) be, right? Just be at the end of the day who I was. And it really wasn't until in my mid-20s, I started to reach out to my girlfriends who had grown up with me in my church and tell them what I was experiencing and then heard them tell me such similar stories from their own lives that I began to piece together that there might have been something bigger that happened to me, that happened to us, And that was the beginning of what became 15 years of interviews with people who were raised in evangelical churches around the country about the ways in which this purity movement that I began to discover had actually impacted us as we became adults and started to try to function in the world. And over time, that became the story of that 15 years of healing through the connection to other people who were also healing became my book. And then my book became a nonprofit and became coaching because I started to have more and more people come to me as increasingly, we were all having this kind of wake up, like, wait a minute, not everyone hates (laughs) themselves. Not everyone looks at themselves in the mirror and sees that they have a curvy body and goes, oh, you're a horrible person. Look at you with your curves, you terrible temptation, Right. So there's been a lot of incredible energy as people have been realizing that we were part of something and becoming now part of something new, something that we're creating, a movement toward recovery, a movement toward healing, a movement toward trusting and loving ourselves.
1: Wow. My heart is just like breaking hearing this story of yours and And all this fear, anxiety, and inner hatred and judgment that was almost indoctrinated within you at a very early age. And it's really wonderful that you've managed to break out of it and have dedicated your life to helping others break out of it.
0: It's been really powerful.
1: And something that came up for me when I was reading your book, it was just how extreme some of the situations are. Like there's one thing about sexual shame. But there's another about when that sexual shame overflows into all the relationships that you have in your life. And I remember one of the people you interviewed said they brushed their teeth for 10 minutes after a boy kissed them. Because purity extends not only to sex, but basically any romantic interaction. So how do we break out of this? It seems so tightly part of a person's psyche who's been brought up in this way. What are the first steps around breaking out of such shame and stigma?
0: Yeah. I love that you titled this episode, Breaking the Shame and Breaking the Silence, right? Because, you know, that is really a a very similar conversation. What it is to break the shame is to break the silence oftentimes. You know, so for a lot of us who grew up in these cultures and these communities where sexuality was so shamed that we couldn't talk about it, now when we start to experience something like debilitating shame, Right. We definitely can't talk about that. Right. We can't talk about sexuality. And we definitely can't talk about having issues with sexuality. You know, so imagine that you just had a boy. And actually, that story is not even that she kissed a boy. It's that a boy tried to kiss her. And she didn't push him away fast enough. (laughs) And it made her feel so dirty and so bad that she had to, you know, brush her teeth for 15 minutes afterward just to feel like her mouth was clean, right? You know, so imagine you have an experience like that and everything that's going through your mind is you did that. You inspired him coming toward you for the kiss. You didn't stop it. You're responsible for the purity of all people. And therefore, if he came to you and he tried to kiss you, it's you, it's your fault. You did something bad. You didn't push him away fast enough. You did something to make him even think he could try in the first place. Now, who are you going to (laughs) tell? You know, who are you going to tell I'm experiencing, you know, this much shame when you think you should be experiencing that much shame? So I feel like the first step is often this terrifying step of opening your mouth and admitting the thing that you are sure is going to make the entire world reject you, you know, talking about what you're experiencing, talking about your shame, talking about the fear. But oftentimes people can't do that until they know that they're not alone. I think that's why the book has been so powerful, because the book not only tells my stories, but tells the stories of many, many, many other people. And for a lot of readers, you know, who felt like they were alone and could never tell anyone about anything that they were experiencing, you know, hearing the stories of other people and going, okay, 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 if there are at least as many people as recorded in this book experiencing this, (laughs) right, then maybe I can take the risk. You know, maybe I can tell my best friend, you know, what I'm feeling. Maybe I can tell my sister what I'm feeling. And it really isn't until we start to have those conversations and start to see that we don't have to be in isolation that we can begin to start to heal.
1: Yeah, 15 years of interviews and so many voices beginning to break free from the silence. And in the publishing of the book it encourages others who think that they're alone to realize that they're not. And I'm wondering... On this path that you've taken, what kind of resistance have you experienced from those in the evangelical community? I'm wondering what kind of an uphill battle it has been for you. You know, I've had even just sex educators who aren't in the world of of evangelical Christianity tell me about the hate mail that they receive, you know, every day, just because they want women to buy vibrators, for example. (laughs) 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 So, uh, yeah, I'm wondering in this uphill battle is what kind of experiences you have had pushing against you?
0: Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? Are they sex educators in general? or Are they the people that you're thinking of specifically? Are they women or non-binary folks? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mostly women. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's just when it comes to sexuality, there's so much more shame among those who are women or who are not tidally kept in the man box, <laughs> right? So if we're not a stereotypical, quote unquote, masculine person, then there's a much, 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 much more shame for our sexuality. And it's interesting because, you know, in terms of this question of resistance, it's a good question. Because when I was processing these things in the first place, you know, back when I was part of the community and dealing with my own journey long, long, long before I was doing the interviews and certainly long before I was writing a book and talking about it publicly, you know, my fear of the resistance from just doing my own healing was how my own evangelical church and community would shame and reject me, right? Via how they talked about me, via their judgment, via their cruelty. And that did happen. (laughs) And I survived. And that is what allowed me to get to the next step of building community and finding that I wasn't alone. When the book was going to come out, I found that I was experiencing a fear of resistance that felt so familiar. So I had gotten over my fear of how my own personal community was going to shame and reject me because I had experienced it and because I'd survived. But now that I was going to start talking about these things publicly, I found a very similar feeling inside of me about the fear of how the larger evangelical church and community was going to shame and reject me in regards to how they talked about me and how they judged me and their cruelty, right? And it's true. You're right. Those in that community who stand up um, have gotten some horrific threats from people that I've heard about, but also women who speak up about controversial issues in general, whether they're in conservative religious communities or not, and especially if they're going to talk about sexuality, and especially if they're going to talk about sexuality in the church, receive a lot of resistance. You know, I have, I have friends who I remember before the book would tell me stories about certainly lots of hateful messages, but also death threats and rape threats where people would say, I know your address, and they'd list their address bomb threats, where people would literally call in a bomb threat to their home. Just horrific things. And so I just remember a tremendous amount of fear before the book came out and taking a course to protect my computer and, you know, wiping my, the internet of my address and all of these things. And I remember feeling that I couldn't tell how much I was being reasonable in my fears and how much I was being almost paranoid because of what was still left of shame you know it just reminded me so much of the previous iteration <laughs> of breaking free right and i remember when it did come you know much like it had come earlier it was after i had a particular article in the new york post and then fox news and i just got you know an onslaught of of hate for several days and then it passed and i survived and i remember when it passed and i survived feeling like oh I can do anything. (laughs) Like, I actually just did the thing that terrified me most, as I had done, you know, 10 years earlier, right? In where I was at at that point. And if I can do that, and if it can actually happen, I mean, thank God I didn't get all of the horrific things that have happened to some of my friends, then what can stop me now? And it was very, very powerful. And these days, The truth is I get very little resistance. The truth is that a lot of the, for me, the resistance was tied to who was writing about me, where they were writing about me, because there isn't as much chatter, chatter, chatter in some of those places right now because the book has been out for a couple of years. Now, I still hear from people literally every single day, but it is the groundswell of people who have had the book passed to them by a friend or who have had the book given to them by a therapist, or what have you. And so now I get endless, endless outreach from people who say, this is my story. I thought I was alone. I mean, I kind of wanted to go through that whole thing just to say, I think in both cases, facing my biggest fear and facing the resistance, facing the shaming, facing the attacks, is what allowed me to also access the love and access the community and access the connection. Right? Does that make sense? Like, I had to put myself out there. I had to put myself out there in both cases, you know, both on my personal journey, I had to put myself out there and face all this stuff in order to do the interviews and to create the community that helped me to heal. And then later, I had to put myself out there even more in order to find the others, (laughs) you know, the many, many people who are healing themselves and who have therefore become part of my healing even more as well. That was a long story, but I just wanted to kind of bring forward the way in which being in front of the eyes of people who judge you also allows you to be in front of the eyes of people who need you and who you need.
1: Mm. No, it's a wonderful story that you're sharing about transitioning from your own personal liberation to focusing on more of a collective liberation is you had already gathered the skills and the strength and the willpower to go beyond the resistance that you're experiencing. You had shame and personal liberation. And then as you're helping others, the same resistance comes up. I just love what you just said, that being in front of the eyes of people that judge you allows you to be in front of the eyes of people that need you. And I'm really curious about how and why things got this way. The situations you describe sound so heartbreaking, so challenging around the shame that's put on sexuality in general, but then particularly around women. And, you know, the Bible is a wonderful, incredible, inspirational book full of incredible stories and Christianity in of itself offers a very rich spiritual life in so many ways. But the way it manifests so often nowadays is a very limited dialogue around sexuality, around things like abortion rights and women's purity and homosexuality and masturbation and how many of these things are bad, you know, inherently. And I'm just curious, how does such a rich spiritual life devolve into a select few issues around sexuality specifically issues with a total double standard around women, particularly designed to oppress half of the human race? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's such, a, it's such a big question because it has, you know, I think that you could probably bring on 50 different experts who would give you 50 different answers. And the reason that is the case is because there have been many moments throughout history that have made this possible and many thinkers who have made this possible. Some of the earliest things that people point to are in the early, early days of Christianity, a lot of the early Christian thinkers were highly influenced by Greco-Roman culture. And thinkers like Aristotle and Plato were talking about the mind-body separation, and specifically the mind being better than the body. (laughs) Right? You know, so that is really baked into Christianity in a way that it was less baked into Judaism from which Christianity you know emerged so that's one point that people you know often point to really just at the very 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 earliest days of Christianity but there have been many many other points over Christianity each with her own story that ultimately come down to the reality that we live in a Broken world, a world of deep, deep injustice, and a world of power and control. And that religion oftentimes, I feel like, walks a very careful line, or more often doesn't walk that line, sort of errors on one side or the other of that line. And on one side is, I think, true spiritual revolution or a revelation and revolution. which is the sort of heartbeat of religion, right? Like the heartbeat of Christianity that says radical love, that says radical acceptance, that says radical equality. I think those are the kinds of spiritual truth messages that vibrate in faiths that people feel jittering through them when they have an encounter, a truly real encounter, right? And on the other side of that line are cultural ideas and cultural norms that are oftentimes rooted in our imbalance and our injustice and our hate and our fear, et cetera. And, you know, what ends up happening is that both of those things, you know, you'll have a particular thinker who's drawing from both, but tags them both as having heard God's voice. And you'll have particular people then who read those texts, one who really reads the radical equality, and the other who really Reads the God's call to make sure that inequality and power differentials are maintained, right? So the Bible, I've heard it said, you know, what we read in the Bible says more about us than it does about the Bible itself, right? I think that's true of many texts and certainly our most profound texts that are often written in complex ways because complexity is required to hold something as powerful as spirituality, right? But then you kind of come in to, I referenced the purity movement earlier, I'll give you a little bit more of a picture. So with that as kind of our backdrop, right, all of that stuff and all those people, Paul and St. Augustine, or or one might just say Augustine, you know, having scattered our way through the history of Christianity, now we come up to the beginning of the purity movement um, with all of that embedded into our Christian history or our our. Christian histories, right? Because there's lots of Christianities and lots of histories. And we come up to the early 1990s, and the country is reeling from the AIDS crisis. (laughs) And people are terrified as a nation and are desperately seeking something to keep these young people safe, you know? And there is a population of people who say, The way that we keep people safe is via comprehensive sexuality education. You know, we give them information. We give them tools. And then there's another population of people who's saying the way we keep them safe is we teach abstinence only. And abstinence only means we don't give them information, right? We tell them this is the only way. And we don't give them tools. You know, you can't talk about abstinence and condoms, right? It's abstinence only, Right? And the abstinence only folks were very, very connected to the purity culture folks, the purity movement people who were ultimately responsible with creating a larger purity culture. So a lot of those issues that you named really didn't become solidified until years around that period. Those are kind of the cultural touch points around sexuality of today. And you can really look at the purity movement to understand how a lot of those touch points were established. But because of this longer history, there have been other touch points at other points. There was a moment not so long ago when a fissure in the community was around divorce as a sexuality issue or around whether it was better to be uh, sexually abstinent than to be married, right? Whether actually like sex within marriage was controversial, (laughs) <laughs> because mm. you know true Christianity, a good Christian would be abstinent, so there have been other moments in history, so I'm sorry, it's such a long answer but but it is it is so very, very complex you know that leads us to the moment of the establishment of the purity movement.
1: I really appreciate the comprehensiveness of your answer, and there's there's so many lovely ideas i I want to get into if we only had more time so one of the things you mentioned is we live in a, in a broken world, a world of deep, deep injustice, a world of power and control. And I think that's really important in recognizing that there's still much work to be done just in the world of women's liberation, but also in the world of just equality and dignity for all. And I also like what you said that what we read in the Bible says a lot more about us than it does about the Bible itself. And often the way that Christianity manifests in the world is more reflective of the culture you know, at that period of time. But the one idea I really wanted to continue is what you said about the heartbeat of Christianity, which is radical love, radical acceptance, and radical equality. Because one of the main things we all know from the Bible is to love thy neighbor and to love others. And I'm thinking about all the quite opposite of love that you experienced when you were growing up. And also just a lot of the hate that we do see from people who do follow the Bible and who do call themselves Christians and how we do bring more love and how we do encourage people to see their faith as loving and accepting of all peoples, including immigrants, including gay and lesbian and LGBTQ plus community. How do we encourage more radical love, acceptance and equality?
0: Yeah. I mean, there are some people who, for whom theology is very important, who I think find it very, very meaningful to find theological thinkers who can point to other ways to read the Bible or point to sections of the Bible that many of us who grew up in the types of community I did were guided not to see. So that's where I think... Some of the womanist theology and other sort of liberation theology and so on and so forth can be really, really helpful for people. But that having been said, I don't think that that is everyone. I don't think that everyone needs just a better theological argument. (laughs) In fact, I would think that most people, that's not going to be what's going to compel them. I really am a great believer in the power of story and the power of meeting people and just having nothing but their story and their humanity to contend with, right? When I talk about my work, one of the reasons that I try so hard to remain in the space of story is because I don't want listeners to all of a sudden get tense, right? As I start to say something that sounds a little like coded political something, (laughs) you know? Because those are areas in which I think we shut down our ability to hear and our ability to speak. So that's one of the reasons why I think it is so powerful for us to come into this vulnerable act of sharing and to make space for other people to do the same. With Break Free Together, with my nonprofit, one of the things that I'm trying to do is create a curriculum where people can actually bring small purity culture story exchanges to their immediate community. So host fortify friends in your home, or if we're still in the midst of the pandemic, you know, maybe over Zoom, but it's the people who are close to you, right? And teach people how to create a sacred, yet in many cases, secular space where people can take the risk <laughs> and demonstrate the bravery to hold space for other people and to bring themselves to that space. Because I think that's where change actually happens. I think it happens in kitchens. I think it happens in living rooms. I think it happens in phone calls. I think it happens with family. I think it happens when you sit at your hairdresser's station and they tell you their story and you go like, oh, gosh, they seem so great. And yet they, you know, they are part of this community that I was taught is horrible, right? Or wherever we are, right? It happens sort of in the, in the, The space of human holding of one another. So that's where I really think if we want to encourage people to be loving, we need to be focused is creating ways for people to to be with one another on the ground, you know?
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. It is really important to have that conversation with others and even people who have beliefs that we may or may not agree with There's many quotes along the lines of, be kind to everyone you meet because everyone is fighting a hard battle. Mm. Or if you knew my story, you would not see me as an enemy. Mm. And I did want to probe a little bit more into your story. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your faith, mainly because you didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I'm almost thinking of the baby with the holy water. But <laughs> <laughs> but there are many people who were brought up in some level of Christianity and they rejected the church altogether because they didn't see it in line with the social movement at the time. Uh, there are many gay and lesbians who had too much shame and they just felt the thing that they needed to do was reject the church altogether. But you're still strong in your faith and you still talk about loving God. And I'm wondering... How did you tease apart the ideas that you didn't agree with along purity movement, along sexual repression of women to remain strong in in your faith?
0: Mm. It's interesting. I don't know that my faith in God or the great unknowable unknown, as I sometimes describe God, (laughs) right, was ever shaken. I remember when my faith... In the God that I was taught to see was shaken. I remember when I lost that. You know, I I once heard someone say, I didn't lose my faith, I lost your faith, and I found my own. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's really what it was. I realized that in the moment that I thought that I was losing my faith and I shook off so much of what I had been taught and was sure that that meant I had lost my faith and then still felt God, I remember realizing that there was a difference between what I had been taught and a deeper layer of faith that existed beneath that, right? I had been taught these are the things that you're allowed to have faith in. This is what it has to look like. And when that disappeared, I thought that was everything. And then there was another something else, <laughs> something that was harder to name, something that was harder to explain, but something that was omnipresent. And that was, I think, when I realized that I I still had faith and I just had lost faith in the church or in a whole lot of things, <laughs> but, not, but not in God, right?
1: I very much appreciate you bringing in the great mystery. You know, often spiritual teachings are described as like a finger pointing at the moon, and so many people get caught up on the finger, they forget about the underlying reality that of course goes beyond language. So you still had faith, maybe had lost some faith in a, a lot of the things the church was saying, but not in God. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about love, in particular divine love. One of my favorite books is called Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships by John Wellwood. And I very much like this idea that, you know, as human beings, we are imperfect, or sometimes I say perfectly imperfect. But then we have this idea of divine love, what some people call unconditional love. And often the word God or the great, unknowable, unknown, is often used as an example of what unconditional love can be, and we can set an aspiration for ourselves to hold that. So I'm really just curious what the divine love of God looks like to you.
0: I mean, I love what you just said about divine love being unconditional love, because there really is something extraordinary about unconditional love, about the love that we choose that isn't, I think, natural <laughs> to, to many people, that calls forth a part of ourselves that is even divine, you know, that is capable of such a feat as unconditional love. I mean, think about so many of the stories that we read and that we hold on to through the generations of unconditional love. Perhaps one of the reasons that we love them so much, that we love those novels in which those characters show that kind of depth of love for one another, is because it is as unreachable and as untouchable for some of us as God can sometimes feel. And when we find it in ourselves, it is like finding a divinity within.
1: That's wonderful. I also really believe in the power of unconditional love. And it reminds me of when I was writing my own book, The Seven Lessons of Love. And one of the lessons was you can never open up your heart too much because unconditional love is an aspiration. And by opening our heart more and more, we get more in touch with this unconditional love. And then I kind of emailed the manuscript to some different colleagues. And this one very strongly feminist author got back to me with a very strong response about this lesson that you can't open your heart too much because she said for millennia, Women have been sacrificing themselves and who they are in order to appease their man and, and the husband, and oftentimes unconditional love can be very one-sided where it's expected of, of the woman who bows down backwards and sacrifices her livelihood and is expected to quit her job in order to have babies in the marriage, and the man is expected to keep his job and be the breadwinner. And I really thought, man, how am I going to rephrase this so to be more inclusive? And I know you kind of see a lot of the same thing in the evangelical movement around a woman's role is to sacrifice herself. So how do you get past that?
0: Yes, 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 yes. I was like, I was miming snapping my fingers because I didn't want to, uh-huh. to interrupt you, but like, you know what I'm saying? But um, <laughs> to answer that question, I want to go back to something that you said previously. We were, you were talking about the sort of core tenets of Christianity. And you said the kind of golden rule to love others as you love yourself. You know, one of the things that I think we have lost in that is the way in which power and privilege impact how we need to hold that rule. For some of us, it is very easy for us to love others more than we love ourselves. And particularly for those of us who are taught that that is the only way that we have worth, and that we will ever receive love. You'll never receive love, so many women are told, and certainly so many women in purity culture are told, unless you give every single ounce of yourself for your children, for your husband in particular, for everyone, <laughs> you know? So for people who were raised with this notion, with this broken message about their lack of self-worth, to love others as you love yourself, the message is that I think needs to be held, you know, for so many of us is to love ourselves. I was working with a coaching client recently. And I remember we were talking about something that she wanted to do. And I said, what would it take from your husband and your children for you to be able to do that? Okay, so maybe a half an hour a day that you would need to do that, right? And she, she had such struggle. It was so hard for her. She said, well, maybe I can wake up super, super, super early in the morning before anyone's up and I'll do it then. <sighs> and I said, no, 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 the, you know, the question is, what would it take for them? Right? What, what could they give up for you to have that? Oh gosh, it was so hard. And then I said, now, what have you given up for them to have those types of things? And she said, well, my whole life, everything is shaped around them having the time and the space and everything else that they need. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> now, meanwhile, for people who are taught in society that they deserve and therefore have that power and privilege, like men in many cases, the message is to love others as you love yourself sometimes, right? Because they were given a different message about what makes them worthy. You're only worthy if you are the most important one, if you are in control, if you do have power, right? That's what makes you worthy. That's what makes you worth respect worth love. So all this to say we need to first of all remember who wrote our religious texts (laughs) and in which contexts they were written and in which broken worlds they were penned or chiseled or what have you. (laughs) But also, you know, we need to remember the context of our own lives and what we were raised with and our stuff. And again, that's why, you know, spiritual texts are written in complex ways in parables and in stories. Because it isn't a one size fits all. <laughs> that doesn't even work for for t shirts. Why would it work for religion? <laughs> yeah, you like that? I thought that was pretty
1: good. I do like it. I do like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, just want to repeat what you said: that so many women in purity culture are told they have to give every single ounce of themselves to their husband and children, and. This giving of all to other people that's put on women, you know, also reminds me of this organization you write about in your book called True Love Waits, which implies that true love means waiting or saving sex for marriage. And continuing along with this idea of not throwing out the baby with the bathwater or holy water. How do we want to think about what true love is? What, how does our view of love and relationships change? Staying in almost like a Christian context, but recognizing that purity culture is not serving anyone.
0: Well, so before I can talk about the reframe, I first just have to talk about how damaging that original frame is. Not only because you're told that if you didn't wait, you don't have true love. And not only that, but in fact, can't. Have true love because that's the message, right? Um, if you don't wait, you will never find true love. You'll never be loved. You'll be lucky if anyone, you know, decides to marry you anyway, though it is such a terrible thing to be married to you because you're impure, right? So that's not only that message, which is so damaging, but also the flip of that. If you did wait, it is true love, which actually. Keeps people in some very dangerous and damaging and toxic relationships, right? If you believe that you are only allowed to date one person, and then you have to marry them, (laughs) and then you have sex with them, and now that you've had sex with them, you or maybe you had sex before you got married, but now you are bound to them, and you'll never be loved or lovable by anyone else, you can't leave them right? This is your only shot at true love. And if they start to hit you, you're going to have to find a way through it. And if they hurt you, well, this is your life. This is your reality. This is your true love. You waited. This is your only option now. So just the frame, i it's just so painful. So I just had to take a moment on that before I think about, okay, so what could true love actually mean? I once heard many, many years ago, I don't even remember where I heard it, but i once heard love described as a choice i'm very compelled by this idea right that love is a choice and that true love is when we act in love you know even when we are feeling anger or feeling a million other things <laughs> you know and and maybe that is sort of what gets at that unconditional love right the love that um that is divine the love that that you say oh my gosh, this child of mine just called me the most horrific name and everything in my heart is breaking, but I am going to hug them (laughs) because I know that they are hurting. (laughs) You know, like that's like true love, right? And I don't know if it waits or if it doesn't wait, that's so sort of superfluous. But I think true love is the love that acts in that unconditional divine way.
1: True love is the love that acts in an unconditional divine way. And I feel like that basically answers my last question, but because I love to finish all of my interviews by asking the same question to all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? So you feel free to add on to what you've already said.
0: Yeah, I actually have a different message about love,
1: I think. Awesome. (laughs)
0: So, so many of the people that I work with and that I've interviewed and that I've been in community with over the course of this work around purity culture recovery, the big message that so many of us need is that we are worthy of love exactly as we are, that we don't have to sacrifice every single ounce of ourselves for love, that we don't have to be pure (laughs) You know, and never have a sexual thought and never have a sexual feeling and blah 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 to be loved. That we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be a sexual superstar at every moment, <laughs> or be ultimately the great pleasurer, the great satisfier to be loved, you know, that we are lovable in our most difficult moments and our most incredible moments that
1: we are worthy. I feel like when I heard your story and I heard other people's story, my heart was like breaking a little bit more and more. And I feel like you just mended that, mended it all together (laughs) with such a beautiful message that we are worthy of love exactly as we are. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be pure. Thank you so much, Linda K. Klein. For our listeners who want to learn more about you and join this wonderful movement you've co-created with some other amazing individuals, how can they find you and work with you? Yeah, I
0: have a website, which is my full name, Linda K. Klein. and My middle name is spelled out K-A-Y. You can find all kinds of things there. You can find out more about the book. You can find out more about the coaching and the all the kind of stuff. But there's also a section of the website that you can access there or go directly to, which is breakfreetogether.org. And Break Free Together is the nonprofit that I do the work of kind of organizing. And really what we're doing is creating spaces for story exchange for people to come together and to release shame, as I think you said at the beginning of this interview, and claim our whole selves.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much for listening to other people's stories and sharing their stories. And thank you for encouraging everyone to share their stories. And thank you for believing in the power of stories. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you know that you are worthy of love exactly as you are. And if you did grow up in a community that had a lot of shame and self-hatred and blame and judgment around your sexual being know that there's hope and know that you can break free of such a culture and be fully in your lovable divine self and thanks again for listening if you want to learn more about me you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com thanks again linda
0: thank you thanks again for listening to the learn to love podcast To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.